Navigating the Datascape with Warner Chavez and special guests. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Datascape podcast. Today, we are going to do Google data-related updates, all about updates of data services in the Google Cloud for fall 2021. We're recording November 18th, 2021, and today I have with me a very knowledgeable guy, a solutions architect with tons of experience in the Google Cloud, Mr. Scott McCormick. Hi, Scott. Say hello and introduce yourself to the audience, please. Hello, uh, Scott McCormick. I'm solution architect at Tithian. I've been um, working with data data-related stuff for 15 years, started off as a um, SQL Server Oracle DBA, kind of bounced around between companies, moved to Pythian, um, came into the SQL Server and Consulting Group, and for the last three and a half years, I've been focused on um, big data, particularly in GCP, big data, data lakes, data governance, data lineage, data, everything. Data, everything, everything that starts with the word data, this man does. Anyway. Um, so let's walk through these updates. A lot of uh, it's a mix, mixed bag of stuff for updates for this episode for Google Cloud. We have some new services. We have some uh, pretty cool updates to other services. Let's start with the new services. So there's a brand new stuff coming out. I think it's in preview right now called the Analytics Hub. So Scott, let us let us know what is this Analytics Hub? Yeah. So Analytics Hub um, picture. You are sitting in GCP. You've done all the hard work. You've you've taken the data from your source system. You've built pipelines. You've got um, your tracking lineage. You're doing all the transformations. You've moved the data from source, combined it together, and made something really valuable and put it in the BigQuery. And now you have a set of people who you may or may not know that you want to share the data with. Um, Analytics Hub gives you the ability to publish a data set containing interesting data um, within what Google's calling an exchange. So you define a listing, which you can put a description and a logo and everything and, mm. and give people access to that listing, public, private, or um, otherwise kind of access to that listing. And then people come in and they subscribe. And when they subscribe to your listing, they get access to anything that's in that data set. There's some things that aren't supported, stored procedures um, in particular, not stored, not supported, um, but all the tables, the views, um, functions are supported and, and they don't see the code. They can execute the functions, um, AI models, all that kind of thing. So the point of Analytics Hub is to let you um, share these data sets with subscribers that you don't know about Again, well, you know, you may want to just have your marketing department be able to access a data set, but you don't want to deal with um, giving them permissions, right? Or you may want to make it available to the public. A future use case for this uh, that Google plans to put in is the ability to charge for access to this data, right? So you may want to try and sell it to the public because it's that valuable. Um, or you may just want to make it available to third-party customers and vendors of yours. Uh, through this exchange. So that's what Analytics Hub is, is kind of a, a front-end market for um, giving you uh, the ability to publish out this data. So very nice. So what are the data sources supported? Like where is this Big, data that I'm sharing coming from? BigQuery data sets only. That is okay, so all the BigQuery data sets only. 
So yeah. so BigQuery would be if you want to adopt this thing at least right now. So if I want to adopt the Analytics Hub, um, mm -hmm. I have to be centralizing into BigQuery, and then from BigQuery, BigQuery would be kind of like my hub. Well, obviously it's called Analytics Hub, but, but the, right. the actual database hub would be BigQuery, and then from there I share out to other people. Right. Exactly. Yeah, they and they get access, and they don't. They're not copying the data. Just to be clear, they just get. Um, it looks like the data is inside of their own BigQuery project or their own GCP project, um, but it's not. They're just it's a basically a linked list back to your data. Yeah. Uh, but for the subscribers, it looks like it's local data that's just sitting in their environment, right? And then they cool, can cool. This is yeah. This is this is yeah. uh, very very similar to what Snowflake has been building as well. It, even down to the uh, the analogy of the exchange, right? And not not surprising, mm -hmm. right? Like usually when one of the providers comes up with a good idea, we still see it pop up everywhere else, and it's, it makes a lot of sense in my opinion um, to adopt this this paradigm of of the exchange and being able to publish and subscribe, kind of like self service data subscriptions, right? It is very much, and you know, future uh, future kind of exchange functionality they're planning in is kind of building in the entire life cycle of a subscriber. So somebody can request um, to get a subscription to your data set, to your listing rather. Um, you can accept that request. You can communicate with them about updates to the requests or updates to the listing, and then at some point potentially even terminate their subscription. Right. So they've got they're planning on building a lot of cool or useful functionality into it moving forward. Right now, it's basically just though, it gives you the ability to um, subscribe to the data set and, and uh, monitor who's using it, of course, and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't have some of these features yet. And, and when we say public uh, exchange, is there, mm -hmm. I don't know if Google already has this or is it already available or not, but is there a plan or is it already available to monetize um, data sets as well. It, so if I have it, a cool data set on my BigQuery, can I charge people for it? Yes, not yet, but that is in that is on the roadmap. That is in the plan uh, for the future. Um, you know, somebody comes in, they run a query, they get charged for obviously the BigQuery resources that they're using. But then you want to charge them, you know, X amount on top of that because you have to you've put together some valuable data. So you can certainly do that, or you, that's at yeah. least. The plan is that you'll be able to do that, and then it'll just be paid out to you through um, your Google account. Yeah, no, it's a pretty cool idea. It's a pretty cool idea. I think um, right now, I think for example, Microsoft, I think it's weak on this area of the mm -hmm. data sharing. I, I see this idea of the data exchange pretty much coming everywhere. Uh, I'm not up to date on on AWS and what exactly is the story there right now with the data sharing, but this whole concept of the data exchange, eventually it'll be everywhere because it just yeah. makes sense for, for all these providers to move in, in this direction. It's just a, a really nice front end for managing people's access to your data. Like I say, whether it's internal, external, whoever, like you don't have to deal with having the IAM permission set up or anything like that. You just have a, a view where any data that you want certain people to be able to, you know, certain groups of people to be able to access it, they can get there and they can. Yeah, yeah, it's annoying to be the middle person, yeah. right? Take the like, oh, I need permissions to this or what? It's like, yeah. well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just look, these are the data sets and you can give access to the entire, let's say the marketing group account. Mm -hmm. And then everything else just sorts itself out, right? If they go in with their BigQuery uh, client, then they can consume the listings they want, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right, cool. So Analytics Hub, it currently status is, is it private preview, public private preview? preview. Private, unless something's changed in the last two weeks, private preview. So. Okay, so it should be coming out to public preview pretty soon I then. Think, yeah. People to kick the tires on it. And I, I think the GA is early next year, like January, early. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I, I really like the, the whole stack um, that is being built uh, on the Google Cloud. It's definitely probably, uh, you know, I, I like what uh, Google does. I like what Azure does. Uh, and, and Snowflake is also doing some pretty cool, interesting stuff. So the good thing about all this is that they all put pressure on each other. And then, mm -hmm. you know, we, the end users, are the ones that can reap <laughs> the benefits. All right. Cool. So another another new service, uh, somewhat related and part of like the full data stack at uh, Google Cloud is that Dataplex. What is the Dataplex? So Dataplex um, kind of put out there, and and this is very early days on Dataplex. There isn't really a lot of documentation or anything. So um, this is what I'm gleaning about what Dataplex is. But Dataplex. Um, you know, you have a problem if you're kind of a, a large enterprise customer, which is that you have data being generated by a bunch of different um, departments, um, being put into a bunch of different formats, and being needs to be accessed by a bunch of different other people, right? Okay. And so the ability to um, to store that data um, and to manage the security and the costs and the infrastructure around it. Um, and to get metadata about it and understand what it is and, and then just to, you know, um, manage it moving forward. Like that's what Dataplex is, is meant to solve. So within Dataplex, um, it basically gives a single, one pa single pane of glass kind of situation where you can define okay. um, a data lake, right? So you have a, a retail data lake or a sales or finance data lake. And then within that data lake, you define different zones. You know, we have our ingestion zone, raw data zone, curated data zone, um, maybe a data science data zone, right? So you have all these different zones underneath all these different data lakes. And then within the zones, you attach what are called assets, but it's effectively just um, types of data, right? So it can be either BigQuery or GCS storage, so but, either files okay. or data sets. Um, it could be data from multiple projects, whatever it is. But the point is, is that data is in one location. Like I'm attaching a GCS bucket to a, uh, a zone, which is in three different lakes. I don't need three copies of the data. They just each have their um, different access. And then what Data Lake does um, is it lets you uh, do a bunch of different common tasks and manage um, access to that data and um and everything else through just that one dataplex on the glass through the lake zone um asset kind of idea so again if you want to give marketing access to their marketing data lake which includes these five uh buckets and a data set and and a couple you know individual assets well that's fine whoever has access to the uh, marketing data lake can can get to that data you don't need to manage it all individually when it, like I say, it might be across multiple projects and multiple different buckets and all over the place. Right. So, okay. So, so there is a, is there is a, there is somewhat, there's a, an overlap with the, with the analytics mm -hmm. hub in terms of sharing data, but it's not at the level that we look in the analytics hub then, right? Cause in the analytics well, hub, you're giving people access to a data set that is already listable like presentable it's just like plug and play kind of thing whereas dataplex seems more like 
lower level, like I'm giving yeah. them access or managing access at the individual resources that compose yeah. the data, right? So it's more for like probably like data engineering type of, of users. Well, it is. And and to be clear, Dataplex also includes GCS buckets, right? So data that's in, in files. Um, but it also... Um, it's for data engineering. It's for it's you know it's it's data at different stages. Like I say, you've got mm -hmm. your zones. You may have your raw data and your you know your ingested and your curated data. So it gives you that. But it's on top of that, like Dataplex also goes in and does um, gets a bunch of metadata about the different assets. Um, it can okay. do some built-in data quality checks on it, um, just so you have an idea of kind of the quality of the data. But like just as an example, you if you write like a Parquet file to a, uh, yeah. a, a storage bucket, um, Dataplex is going to automatically extract that metadata. Um, it'll see that it's a, it's a tabular kind of format that it has partitions. Um, it'll run some quality checks on it. And then, you know, if, if you want, it'll, it'll make that data queryable via BigQuery, right? It'll set up an external table um, in BigQuery pointing to the, that, those Parquet files, right? So, okay. um, so it is definitely it does, more I mean, for data engineering than yeah, yeah. It's in it's, that perspective. it's for a lot more um, around that, and then you know, so administrators can like they can manage the cost and security and the infrastructure around it, um, and it also gives you an environment for the like I say the engineers or data scientists or analysts to kind of have a um, to develop and run like notebooks and scripts and things and um, all that, right? So. Okay, I like this. I like I like uh, the fact that they're trying to create a service that puts some boundaries and controls around the actual data engineering process, right? Not just because a lot of times it's like what we just talking about, right? There's a lot of thought about boundaries and controls to the end user consumer of the data, which would be mm -hmm. like a data exchange kind of concept. But people don't really think that much about boundaries and controls for the people that are supposed to have access to the uh, assets directly, right? The GCS buckets or the uncurated tables, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think it's, uh, it's, it's good to attack that, that angle of the problem too, because uh, oftentimes what we see instead is the, you know, data engineers, even especially bigger, bigger projects, and they just have like, way too much access to everything and it kind of becomes a mess as things goes along too right so this is nice for that right like it lets you kind of segregate people into the appropriate areas um, make sure that you know they don't they can't just because you can access this today doesn't mean you can access this other thing tomorrow right so yeah yeah absolutely makes a lot of sense okay yeah. cool yeah i like these tools i think uh they definitely sound like parts that were missing from the whole stack that come in mm -hmm. and really complete the whole thing, right? So you'll have, you know, the core data services like BigQuery, like GCS. And then when you run in, you want to start a new project or you want to, you know, bring in some extra level of maturity, you can implement Dataplex for your mm -hmm. data engineering and your, uh, you know, direct access uh, professional data pros, like, you know, low level uh, analysts or data scientists. And once you're ready to just, you know, share with the rest of the world or the rest of your org, then that's when the analytics hub comes in, right? So different mm -hmm. services for different uh, tasks at the end-to-end the -end life cycle of a, of a data solution, right? Yeah. 
and they they're they're developing some partnerships. I know Calibra and I think Informatica and okay. others are are building integrations with Dataplex too. So that would be cool. Okay. Yeah, not one hundred percent sure what those will look like, but uh, probably just reading about the metadata uh, that Dataplex is grabbing and incorporating it into their own systems. Right? Yeah, so putting it into those... like uh, commercial catalogs, like tools, yeah, commercial exactly. tools that have nice catalogs. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense too. Right, because a lot of these companies, right, that a lot of the friction sometimes is to, if they already have a stack that they built on their own, then it's hard for them to switch. But if you can right. give them some value add, right, like the fact that it can integrate seamlessly to the Google Cloud services and still keep some of the other tools they already adopted, then obviously that's uh, extra points to help convince people to migrate and start using these newer services, right? Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I don't think Google, sure they'd like to be, but they're they're never going to be all things to all people, right? So having those partner integrations is pretty critical. Yeah, there's always a lot of uh, a lot of ecosystem uh, partner tools that are very popular anyway. All right, cool. What about? I heard there's another thing called that data stream. What is that they, one? Data stream. It's a um, it's a serverless uh, CDC and replication service. Um, meant for kind of heterogeneous databases. So uh, data stream is, right now it's an Oracle MySQL database source um, okay. CDC system. And you can you can configure it to go out to your Oracle or MySQL databases, um, grab the change data, capture data, pull it across and put it into a GCS bucket. And okay. that's the, at a very high level what it does, right? So Postgres uh, support is coming soon. Um, it, it writes the data to a GCS bucket right now, PubSub support eventually. And what it's meant for is to allow you to bring your source data across and put it into, um, theoretically, you could put it into, I suppose, Cloud SQL if you wanted to, but really, yeah. uh, you know, put in the BigQuery, put it into uh, an analytics hub and make it easier to stream kind of real-time changes across that you can do um, faster and better analytics against that data yeah. um, as it's as it's generated, right? Because because Google Cloud also has a database migration service, right? Right. Yeah, which um, points to the Cloud SQL instances, right? Right. So so for people to understand, this is this is not. I mean, it sounds like you could use it for database migration if you wanted to, but that's not really <laughs> the top use case, right? Yeah, and I kind of regretted saying that as soon as I did because, like, theoretically, you could, but it would be a ton of effort and a ton of development. Yeah, exactly. DC logs so it's not meant into for a that. Format which you could do it. Yeah, it's not meant that for that at all. So, ignore that. Okay. What it's meant for is pulling the data across to an analytics kind of service like BigQuery, right? And then, um, and then doing an analytics on the data uh, without having to do a big batch job every night or anything. Just pulling across the CDC and getting it in more real time. Or, or potentially what you were saying, like what you were saying, potentially it could support near real-time scenarios, right? Let's say an app mm -hmm. that is uh, the front end is an OLTP that is living in Oracle, but you have a, a model, an ML model, for example, that you want to score in near real-time to provide some feedback somewhere else then this could be something that you use for that, right? Just take the CDC records, stream them into Google Cloud, score into Google Cloud, and then from there for wherever else you might be publishing the results, right? An API that gets consumed somewhere else or a dashboard or something like that, right? Yeah, something like that. 
Um, again, it just lands in GCS. So yes, yeah, it's, it's near real time. It's really not meant. I mean, I'm not even sure how near near real time would be because you still well, maybe they'll, you still they'll have to process implement. the file once. It's this is this is also the, uh, the data stream is super early too, right? This is also private preview right now. Yes. Well, no, it's available. Is it? Um, it's available in the console, yeah. So. Okay, so it's at least public preview then, but yeah. it is fairly recent. I don't think this has more than like maybe six months. Oh no, not at all. Yeah, it, it, I think it was announced this summer. And so we could be seeing, like you said, down, newer right? targets pop up, right? So instead of just landing on GCS buckets maybe we could see it going into pub sub where it would it, you know um, support even more near real-time scenarios then right from pub sub you can just stream out into yeah, whatever pub subs for sure um going to be a source or a destination rather for this data um soon right i don't know when soon is but it, coming soon is, is, is when it will be same thing with postgres being um um an available source so i think you know we can expect Maybe SQL Server at some point. And those yeah, things. makes sense. And yeah, more more of a real time kind of thing. But for now, it's just yeah. Usually, usually they they start with the most common requests from clients, right? So maybe sure. Oracle, MySQL are the two most popular ones, and then they start expanding and support more and more uh, sources. So that makes sense. So something to keep an eye out. So this is more of a a lower level service, more of an infrastructure data infrastructure type of service. Then, okay. Um, something that's been, uh, we, I don't know if we've talked about it in the podcast before, um, but it's definitely a big move by Google. It, it made a lot of splash when it came out and it's big query Omni. And, and I see now Omni is, has gone GA, but first of all, let's talk about what is big query Omni. Why is such a, a, such a big deal for Google? Yeah. So big query Omni lets you, um, point your, BigQuery instance at data sitting in an AWS S3 bucket or um, an Azure container and pull, query and manipulate that data as if it were natively um, inside of BigQuery, right? So yeah. federate with files sitting on S3 or Azure. Um, I think it is a pretty big deal. I think it's going to make... Um, a lot of people who have these kind of hybrid environments, I mm -hmm. think it's going to be really powerful for them to be able to say. Very hey, attractive. Just, yeah, for yeah. sure. Say, yeah, why don't you just deploy BigQuery Omni? Like, for example, if, I, if, I have, if I'm already living in two clouds, whether it's mm -hmm. AWS and Azure or Google and BigQuery, um, and I look at this, say, well, why, why do I, uh, should I bother with, let's say, looking at my S3 buckets through Athena? Or should I just use BigQuery Omni and see everything as if they were all just uh, in BigQuery, right? So at least gets you thinking for sure, especially now that it's GA, is, is if I have more than one deployment in multiple cloud providers, it uh, it becomes very interesting to at least consider using Omni, right? Mm -hmm. I think so. I mean, you know, when you're only when you've only got the one reporting interface or one interface to all your data, it makes reporting a lot simpler. It makes um, training a lot simpler. It makes everything a lot simpler, right? When you can just say BigQuery is going to be our query engine, what, regardless of where the data lives and regardless of. And something to keep in mind for people to realize as well is BigQuery Omni is because I, I there was a little bit of confusion around this when it came out too. It's not a DR solution. 
right? Some people oh, think, no. oh, so it's basically like some sort of like cross-cloud replication coming to BigQuery, and that's not no. what it is, right? No, it can it can read the data sitting in S3 or uh, Azure containers, um, combine that with existing data sitting in BigQuery or or whatever. Do those do those run the queries? Um, it can pull the data across from S3 into GCP. It doesn't go the other direction, but it is 100% not a DR solution, right? So. Yeah, so the data is not copied, right? That's the whole value prop. If I have 10 terabytes of, of data, I mean, I could. I just could just say, like, you know, select into for every single thing I have in S3. But that, again, right. that's, not, that's not the value prop, right? The value prop is you can do a join of your data sets in Google to a data set in your S3 data lake as if it all was just living inside BigQuery, right? Exactly, yeah. So it's really nice for that. And I, I think, uh, I mean, right now, as far as I understand, so it's available for AWS, it's available for certain customers in Azure. So that GA tag is, again, it's a little bit like, well, okay, okay. Azure's, so full Azure support should be coming, I think, pretty soon. It's nice. It, um, it's just running BigQuery basically on what's called Anthos, right? They're, uh, yeah, they're, yeah. They're I saw an architecture diagram once, and it seems like mm -hmm. it's basically Google hosting BigQuery yeah. inside their competitor's cloud, right? So Google yeah. is, is, is paying for the compute, running probably some uh, Kubernetes inside AWS and inside Azure with some of the BigQuery uh, proprietary bits and then communicates back to Google Cloud. At least that's what the architecture diagram that I saw uh, said, which is, you know, perfectly yeah. fine. I mean, I think it's great actually to think about Google just saying like, you know what, uh, maybe I'll put some of my compute in your cloud and uh, yeah, I'll pay for it. And because so, I mean, at the end of the day, Google obviously has to pay AWS to, to host uh, right. the, the, this infra, but I'll get the value back by having these clients consume consume BigQuery Omni, right? Consume the service yeah. itself. Yeah. I, I do wonder who their TAM is and how they how they manage that uh, relationship. But yeah, yeah, it'd be yeah, yeah, very interesting. You know? no, I think it's very cool. All right, okay, so let's move on to the next one. This one was just announced at Google Next. Uh, what was that? Two three weeks ago. Very fairly new, and it is the coming capability of running serverless Spark. Can you tell us? what that one is about yeah so serverless spark it's exactly what it sounds like it yeah. is spark what it says uh, in the box yeah right it is it is spark jobs it's meant for batch uh spark jobs right which um you can spin up you by running a, a command a g cloud command or calling an api mm. um pass in some parameters to give it a jar file um and it runs a spark job and it you know it detects how large the, how much infrastructure it needs, um, how much compute, how much shuffle, and then it runs the job and then goes away. And it's just 100%, you don't have to manage anything. Um, all you need to do is have an IP address range that it can um, use for running the, the underlying VMs and, and that's it. And so I think it'll be really nice or anybody who's got Spark processes which need to run once an hour and take, you know, half an hour or 20 minutes or something. Not, not, if you've got something or once a day and take several hours, right? But if you've got mm, yeah, something yeah. which runs every 15 minutes, 
you know, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe you not don't want to have a data prod cluster yeah. sitting there because you do have to, there's still the spin up time around the infrastructure yeah. and everything like that. Right. But, same, same if you're looking at doing like an interactive notebook experience is not for that at all. Oh, no. No, I mean, this is ephemeral kind of like it's going to come yeah. up and, and go down. You just, yeah. You just, yeah. So it's only, it's only for, for jobs type of use cases, not for, because sometimes people think, you know, well, we're going to have serverless park means I can be in front of like a notebook. And then when I press, you know, run on the cell, it's going to grab a spark cluster, run something interactively. Oh. And then that's it. And I don't pay for that compute while I'm looking at the results kind of thing. Right. So that's not the use case at all. So everybody's clear. It's about running jobs. And like you said, there is some expected time while the cluster comes up and then the cluster dies off. So if you need to run yeah. these jobs like every few minutes, then it's not a good case either. But there is definitely a lot of workloads that um, people run that don't have these type of constraints, right? They'll run it overnight, oh, sure. a big Spark job or something like that, that they can benefit immediately from this. Yeah. I mean, if you have a daily or hourly uh, batch process, which takes some files from GCS and does some transformations and manipulation and then spits it out um, and, and throws it into BigQuery or onto a, a, to a GCS data lake kind of thing, um, mm -hmm. this is great for that. You know, this is, this is that perfect use case, right? So yeah. if you just, if you don't want to deal with having a data proc cluster up all the time or one that you need to bring up and, and down on your own, right? Yeah, it's exactly annoying to be managing that life cycle of the cluster yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah, and this oh. is, uh, so So if we look at some of the other providers, um, this is what Databricks has been doing for a while already. Mm -hmm. um, Synapse, Microsoft Azure already has this capability as well. So it's good to see um, Google coming in here with this as well round out that spark offering for sure and uh what versions you know what versions they're offering now are they all the way up to the latest spark uh 3.1 3.2 so all all it supports actually right at the moment because this is still okay. deep like preview this is not available yet really right oh, okay all, yes just announced yeah. the google next yeah yeah but that's so the plan i assume Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, right now it supports uh, Spark 3.2, uh, Java 11, Scala 2.1.2. Um, it's got Spy, Pi Spark, Spark SQL, that kind of stuff, right? Um, R. So that's okay. It's. Cool. All right. Now, one that I thought was very, very interesting, and we'll have to see how it plays out, is that Cloud Spanner. For those that are not familiar, Cloud Spanner is Google's distributed SQL database. And mm -hmm. it is uh, an in-house, uh, fully managed service. It is getting a PostgreSQL interface. So what does this mean that it's getting an interface? Let's walk through that. So, yeah, so this is, um, you, I mean, obviously, you know, you know how Cosmo DB is kind of the uh, be all end all, it feels like, of everything within Azure. Lots of different ways to talk to it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I think this is the beginning of that for Spanner, right? So the um, Spanner, yes, their distributed database, um, and they've built in a Postgres uh, SQL inter interface for it um, to basically allow you to run, you know, 99% of Postgres code against, right. um, well, I shouldn't say not necessarily the code, but uh, Postgres um, statements and, and functions and uh, and things like that against a Spanner database uh, without having to make any changes or updates, right? So, okay. 
Um, so it's not just data compatibility, but we're talking about no. uh, statement, like a language level of the PostgreSQL implementation compatibility. Yeah, it's it's schema compatibility, language compatibility, um, uh, you know, different data types, metadata compatibility, and and even connectivity kind of compatibility, right? So you would still be connecting using um, the Postgres uh, applications that you want and sending the same kind of queries across, and then it'll just, um, they've built this sidecar proxy thing that uh, magically knows you, oh, I actually want to go to Spanner, right? And then yeah, okay, okay. So, so for people to be clear, this is not a tool that takes like your Postgres and then does a static migration to Spanner, right? The idea is no. that you would be, it basically, want, it basically fools, quote unquote, the PostgreSQL driver into thinking is talking to PostgreSQL, but is actually talking to Spanner. And yeah, yes, although I, I think, I mean, the Postgres drive, like the Postgres, so it's built into Spanner, if that makes sense, right? Like, I, I don't think it's, it's not running on your local machine. They have the sidecar for, if you have like uh, the PSQL client CLI, Mm -hmm, um, exactly. which it can, it can take that over and send the, send the spanner, send it to spanner instead of to a Postgres instance. But the actual front end interface kind of thing is, is built into spanner itself. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the idea then is I don't need to, or I, in an ideal case where there's no compatibility issues, there's always some edge cases, but let's assume sure. it's a simple, uh, PostgreSQL application that will have full compatibility. I wouldn't need to recompile my PostgreSQL app. All I need to do is repoint right. it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it'll, yeah, it, and you know, the the schema will stay the same. Data types, um, the queries generally are going to be exactly the same, right? The goal here is not necessarily that it's going to be a hundred percent compatible for them. Yeah. Uh, they're they're going more for just to provide the Postgres-like functionality against a Spanner database to make Spanner a lot simpler to use for um, people who are used to Postgres. Or yeah, it's interesting. The interesting they decided to start with PostgreSQL as opposed mm -hmm. to starting with one of the flavors of MySQL, for example. There must have been some market mm -hmm. uh, research <laughs> done there that uh, they decided to go with PostgreSQL instead, right? So that's that's very interesting. And like you said, maybe this will open the door and we'll have a Spanner MySQL interface coming soon. Who knows, right? Or maybe. SQL yeah. Server interface coming soon. Um, yeah. The sky's sure. the limit at that point. Yeah, Firestore potentially, something like that to, uh, if they decide to incorporate the document database like um, Cosmo did. Yeah, uh, I, I find that Spanner is a very interesting product because um, it does, I mean, the idea that it's trying to do, you know, uh, all of SQL, um, consist, a strong consistency, you know, atomic cross tables, uh, mm -hmm. operations, it, it can do relationships, right, with table interleaving or even with explicit foreign keys now. And, and trying to do all of that while still trying to be, you know, a distributed database so that you can partition and grow horizontally, and at the same time also trying to be multi-region uh, with right. uh, you know strong replication consistency as well. Like it's it, you know it's a it's a lot of stuff it's trying to be at the same time. And I do find that for some people, um, it seems like intimidating 
to go into Spanner, right? So maybe this will help um, with this type of tooling to help make that that journey um, a lot more easier and attractive, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's always going to be a question around Spanner with me of of how many people really need that global, you know, kind of scale along with the consistency and everything else um, versus just having a couple of instances with replication between them or something. But, uh, yeah, those, yeah, absolutely. You have to find a good a good use case for it. It has to be mm -hmm. a good fit, right? A client that is looking for those capabilities and the client that is also going to be easy or at least not too complicated to migrate into Spanner, right? Because keep in mind for everybody listening, uh, while the engine itself does very interesting things, the, the biggest challenge of migrating some of these built-in full RDBMSs into Spanner is that Spanner doesn't do uh, store procedures or functions or, or uh, views, for example, right? And now sometimes there's a lot of built-in business logic that people yeah. have created at the database layer over so many years. And if you go into Spanner, you have to move that logic back into the application, which sometimes is obviously a non-starter. Um, when you're talking about a migration, right? Where you don't have the luxury of starting Greenfield. Definitely something to keep in mind as well. You have to find a good use case for Spanner, for sure. And then the last thing we got, uh, I think a couple of things. We just have a few more to cover for today. This is the uh, last one uh, here on the AI space is the Vertex AI uh, Workbench, which I think is also, in general, maybe let's talk about what Vertex AI is in general. Uh, so people can get an idea of what it is and what Workbench is uh, specifically. Sure. So, so Vertex AI is um, the GCP environment for ML ops, right? So for machine learning operations, um, it's basically it's a unified um, UI for the entire ML workflow. You want to develop your models, train them, deploy them, uh, retrain them, or update them, and then you know eventually destroy them, kind of thing. So Vertex AI gives you all the tools you would need to, um, to do all that and then to do all the kind of extraneous stuff around um, the kind of models like, you know, running your, your scripts and notebooks and, and everything like that. So um, Workbench is then kind of like the in environments built into Vertex AI. It's just a subset of Vertex AI. Um, and it's, it's to let data scientists do all of their ML work. Um, okay, so the workbench is like the quote unquote, like the studio uh, experience, like the actual interface where I do my stuff. Yes, yeah. Um, so it, Vertex it, it, AI itself is obviously more than that, right? Because then, I mean, you can probably, I could do work with, let's say, data proc and interact with Vertex AI which has nothing to do at that point with Workbench, right? right? Right. I mean, Vertex AI is is integrated with all of those kind of tools with BigQuery, with Dataproc, um, with mm -hmm. all of that, and it provides you that easy connectivity to all those to do any kind of... All those um, services, yeah, related yeah, exactly. to MLOps. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, but then Workbench is kind of the, the UI to do um, script development, um, uh, you know, do do kind of kickoff training and to just browse kind of probably like browse the assets, day to day right? work. the models, the results yeah. of the experiments and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. So, and you know, it's just to limit kind of that context switching and, and just speed up the development, right? So, um, you can define 
your various no notebooks and, and you can track the execution and, and look at, you know, what different executions have happened and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's just meant for kind of like, you know, more rapid prototyping um, than, than maybe you had before it was rolled out, even if you were using Vertex AI, right? So it's just to give you that single development environment. Okay, yeah, that's that's cool. Definitely, uh, like we said uh, before, the full stack of the data solution services in Google is, is really rounding up and and there's it's basically there's a fine grained very specific tool for almost for almost everything at this point right so or at least that's the way it's gonna it's gonna keep evolving that's cool all right and finally I think we have just uh, one bit about looker and tableau integration what is right. that one about so looker has their um, semantic modeling layer called look ml right so you can create um, a set of dimensions or measures um, and, and standardize them and share them across teams and build other um, standards, uh, other dimensions and measures on top of them and then share those and, and everything, right? Okay. So um, what, they, what they announced uh, is that now Tableau has the ability to reach into that because I, I think the, the general um, thought around the world, at least, is that Looker has a really great semantic layer and Tableau has really nice and better um, uh, report creation ability or better, better. Um, oh, like the visuals? Widgets. Yeah, better yeah. visuals that you can put on your reports, right? So um, this is an integration which allows a Tableau report to reach into the Look ML environment and, and have access see, to that semantic layer. So the kind of best of both worlds um, kind of thing to give. So if I'm coming or... from the uh, from the Microsoft space, it would be like Tableau can connect to my Power BI model, so yeah. I can deploy the Tableau dashboard. Because let's say, like you said, maybe there's a visual that is available in Tableau that's not available on the other tool, and I just want to pull the data out, not necessarily the visualizations, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and just if you uh, if you're if you're a big company potentially using Looker and Tableau um, in different groups, you know you can still you're not going to lose all that. Support both. Um, yeah. Yeah, you're not going to lose all that information that uh, may have been built up inside of Looker if you start using Tableau for certain things, right? I'm not sure. Like this is obviously new for Tableau, but there are definitely other tools which are which make use and connect to uh, can connect to Looker ML. So. Um, it's nice for Tableau. I'm not. I don't think it's super like earth shattering necessarily. Right? There's a reason. <laughs> well, I, I guess like you said, it's uh, more of a big, bigger customers that might have both. It just uh, gives them a, an easy way to integrate both tools. Yeah. If they if they need to. So I yeah. guess that's cool. All right. And I do know, obviously, Google, uh, for people that are not familiar with this, uh, Google acquired Looker probably, what now, like a couple of years oh, at geez. this point? I think uh, yeah. three, two, three years at least. Yeah. Yeah. So so it it makes sense uh, to put more, more uh, investment into the ecosystem, open up Looker to be consumed by, by other tools as well. All right. Mm -hmm. So I, I think... Those are all the updates we have for today. That was a lot of stuff to cover. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's always more stuff coming. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Scott, for uh, joining me today. And uh, until next time, uh, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Navigating the Datascape.